Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. Uh, it's God's kindness, really, to be with you and to open the scriptures this morning. If you're in person or on Facebook uh, or YouTube, thanks again for joining us. And uh, if you're new, we appreciate you visiting. Uh, thanks for being with us. And if you're here again, we're really glad to be with you again as a family. Uh, it's a real Sunday to Sunday privilege and honor. Um, well, we're gonna do something a little different. As you noticed, um, I'm gonna be our scripture reader this morning. And what I wanted to do is take some time to introduce Lent as a season that's relatively new to our congregation. And so I wanted to talk about why we were, what we're doing and what Lent is, and then I'll read the scripture and then we'll pray and then I'll preach. So just kind of, some people like the map, there's the map. Um, all right, so historically and globally, the Christian church has marked the 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday with a season called Lent. And depending on your church experience, Lent may be familiar or unfamiliar to you. Uh, you might associate Lent with heartfelt habits and self-examination and a preparation for Easter, or you might, you might sort of associate Lent with a kind of joyless seriousness. Uh, what one old theologian grumpily called 40 days of pretending the hope of the resurrection never happened. <laughs> or maybe it's associated with a lot of rituals like fasting that were never really explained to you. Or it seems like it's kind of taken this sort of cultural pettiness, like a, a Christian second chance at New Year's resolutions. The chance to give up on chocolate this time for real. Over a month with Jesus this time. <laughs> And there's likely a whole group of folks here who are just kind of drawing a blank <laughs> on Lent and going, ah, what does this have to do with my life? Uh, let's start on the same footing. That's the purpose of this. Uh, there is no biblical text, none, that tells us to practice a season called Lent. And so hear me, your individual or family practice of Lent is absolutely optional. But at the same time, Lent is a practice that the Christian church has used to anticipate Easter Sunday from early in its history and into the farthest flung global gatherings of Christians. And so there is some traditional and practical wisdom at work here. And there is a biblical basis for Lent. In the 40 days of flooding Noah and Durden and Ark, the 40 days that Moses was on Mount Sinai, two times, two sessions, during the 40 years of ancient Israel wandering in the wilderness, the 40 days Jesus fasted in the wilderness, during the temptations, and the 40 days Jesus taught his disciples after his resurrection, but before his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Like all of these number 40 periods, Lent is a time for self-examination and heart preparation. There's a special emphasis on journeying spiritually with Jesus to the cross. By examining our hearts for the sin and self-centeredness that nailed Jesus to the cross, and then turning repeatedly and in hope to the reality of Jesus' resurrection victory. His victory over all of our sins in and through our helplessness and his strength. So if you do choose to give something up for Lent, let that feeling of lack be a reminder of Jesus' power and his sweet satisfaction. Don't let giving up something be about your own or my own self-control or willpower. You can look at North Cross's Facebook group uh, or Instagram for more information about Lent, uh, what it is, and also maybe some practices or places to turn. 
for practices, but I would like to, to do something from the pulpit that's a little bit different. We're gonna look this year uh, during Lent as a church at um, some self-examination of the heart. And the way we're gonna look at the self-examination of the heart is I'm going to preach on the Psalms and the topics of prayer and emotion. Prayer and emotion. I recognize that prayer and emotions, especially the more negative emotions, are difficult topics. They just are. I am regularly underwhelmed by my ability to emote and to pray. Um, and yet in the Psalms, God teaches us to join our feelings to our prayers before God. The Psalms marry this kind of realism about the many ways it feels to be human with a sculpting power. The sculpting power that praying our emotions through the words of the Psalms actually forms or shapes our hearts. And this emotional realism and the spiritual formation make us less divided inside and more able to speak where we are to God with precision and with courage. So in the season of Lent, between two sermon series on the life of David, 1 Samuel, which we left a long time ago, it feels like, and 2 Samuel, which we're going to get to, Lord willing, later in the spring, we turn again to David's words in the Psalms. And we'll do this together each Sunday in a sermon series I'm calling The Words of David, Praying Our Emotions to God. The Words of David, Praying Our Emotions to God. So this morning, in keeping with Lent's spirit of self-examination, we're going to explore how to process what often feels like a very negative emotion, anger. We're going to start with anger or hatred in Psalm 10. So let's read Psalm 10. I'm reading from the English Standard Version translation, and I'll read it for us. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high and out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more.
Friends, these are the words of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray uh, for our time together in these words to us this morning. Father, thank you uh, for these words. Um, Lord, they're uncomfortable, um, and, but I thank you for their honesty, and I thank you that you give us the opportunity to be uncomfortable with you. Lord, that you care um, about so much uh, about this world and about um, who we are and who we're becoming that you would allow us to be uncomfortable a little bit this morning. And I pray that you'd use that uh, holy discomfort and that you would change us by it. And Lord, would you open these words up to the hearts and minds of the people here and to me, and would you refresh us by them? Would you renew us by them? Would you change us by them? Lord, don't let us leave this building, leave our living rooms without uh, encountering you and being changed by it for the better. Lord, um, Jesus, would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? Would you be raised up? Would you help us to worship you all the more from hearing from you this day in your psalm? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In the last several months, um, as we've all kind of been a little bit more homebound during a pandemic, Uh, My family has gotten deep into a YouTube show called Dude Perfect. (laughs) Dude Perfect. (laughs) For the unfamiliar, Dude Perfect is a group of five college friends who do and then film themselves doing things they still do that they did in college. (laughs) Uh, You know, like what college boys like to do, trick shots, uh, pranks, funny that guy stereotypes, quiz shows with unfortunate consequences. It's actually kind of addicting um, in, a, in, a weird, in a weird kind of way. And one character that kind of seems to find his way into more often than not uh, every show is a character called Rage Monster. <laughs> Rage Monster. Uh, Rage Monster is the main dude perfect guy named Tyler finding a reason, no matter what it is, no matter how small, to get really, really upset to lose complete control and break lots and lots of very valuable and explosive things. For me, there's something funny about watching Rage Monster, but there's also something kind of scary and sad about it too. Just stirs up a little bit in me. These kind of staged temper tantrums that Ty gives um, remind me a lot when I was little. Uh, You may not know this, but I was a very angry child. (laughs) And I still have my angry adult moments too. Uh, I haven't completely gotten over it. But when I was young, I'd melt down when my team nearly lost the Super Bowl. I often threw my tennis racket across the court in anger when I lost again to my dad. I was hangry before meals and even including snack time, still hangry before that too. Looking back on it, uh, I'm not sure My parents knew how to handle all of that anger and me losing it like that. And for instance, in a well-meaning moment of parenting, uh, they they kind of took me aside and they handed me a black plastic wiffle ball bat. (laughs) And they told me to go outside and they instructed me to swing that black plastic bat into a metal pole on my driveway basketball hoop over and over again as many times as I could, as hard as I could, until I vented all of my rage. (laughs) Over time, I've learned to be a little bit less angry or get less angry, or at least stuff my anger deep down inside. 
so that most of the time I can be the opposite of raging. Uh, and in our argument, I get rational, cool, detached. And because of this trick, I sometimes not even sure when I'm angry. I'm not even sure why I'm angry until it comes out sideways. You know, that general irritation when no one can do right with you or sarcasm or prolonged depressed bitterness in a person or a situation. Like many of you, I now feel incredibly ashamed, embarrassed, and afraid of my anger. Perhaps more so than any other emotion that I feel. And when I read verses like verse 15 in our psalm this morning, I kind of freeze up and I get sort of embarrassed for the psalmist David in the Bible. In verse 15, David prays to God, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Whoa, what, break his arm? What is this, like the mafia? You see, David the, psalm, David the psalmist in Psalm 10 are angry. They're riding the adrenaline of hate. And we don't know what to do with this. We don't know how to handle this kind of rage. And I would argue it's because we don't know what to do with, we don't know how to handle our own hate, our own anger. You see, David is not actually exploding. He's not venting, you know, plastic wiffle, black plastic wiffle ball bat style. Nor is David stuffing or burying his emotions to get rational and cool and detached. Because to paraphrase a friend of mine, David Jones, stuffing our emotions is like burying uranium waste. It will seep out and contaminate. And venting our emotions is like detonating a nuclear bomb. There always is collateral damage, oftentimes to others and even to ourselves. So instead of stuffing or venting this hatred, the psalmist is praying his rage. He's praying. He's making his plea before God and to God. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Verse 1. And in verses 1 and 15, and all of Psalm 10, there's this invitation to pray our anger. These verses show us how to speak to God about the ways we're threatened, about the wrongs that we see in the world. This is because God is not ashamed of anger. He's not embarrassed by anger. God is not afraid of anger. In fact, in a sentence, Psalm 10 tells us God uses our anger to confront the injustice out there. And God uses our anger to make us more honest in here, inside. More honest about who God is and about who we are. Psalm 10 provokes us by giving us a particular example that is universal enough for us to personally apply and pray our way through. Psalm 10 shows us how to pray through our anger by presenting us with David's legal case. He's making a legal case here, processing his anger out loud and to the judge of the universe. And David's doing so in four passionately argued stages. First stage, verse one, the opening plea for God to just intervene, to show up with justice. Second stage, verses two through 11, the case for God to intervene. Third stage, verses 12 through 15, a redoubled plea for God to intervene. 
And then fourth and finally, verses 16 through 18, the closing argument for our confidence in God. These four stages of praying our anger in the kind of accompanying verses are put in your sermon uh, outline and your bulletin or projected behind me. Since I just discussed verse one and its opening plea that, uh, in my introduction we just talked about, I'm gonna start with point two. Oh, look at that. Um, point two of Psalm 10, verses two through 11, the case for God to intervene. Or how anger, our anger, forces us to confront the injustice outside and all around of us. Okay, according to the Christian counselor, Dan Allender, anger is our emotional reaction when someone or something moves against us. When someone attacks us or assaults us or something threatens us or ours, we get angry. So anger is our emotional reaction when something or someone moves against us. It's sort of an active or fight response to attack or threat. That's what anger is. And there's a passive or flight or freeze response to an attack, and that's called fear. And we're going to talk about fear in a few weeks. But let's talk about anger. This threat can be something that's done against us personally. It can be against our bodies. It can be against uh, something even more abstract than that, like future desires. It can be against present enjoyment. It can be against a kind of past social position that we've enjoyed. Or this threat can be against the way the world is supposed to work, right? It can be a threat that can look like a violation of God's design. It can move against life's goodness and its beauty and its truth. And while other Psalms address our unrighteous anger primarily, like when we rage at feeling out of control, or when we feel blocked from getting what we want, some sort of personal satisfaction, Psalm 10 is encouraging a needful kind of anger. There's a needful kind of anger for anger stuffers like most of us here. This Psalm explores rage, our rage about suffering injustice at the hands of others. That is, anger about the ugliness, the badness, the falsehood of what the Bible calls being sinned against. How do we handle being sinned against? Verses 2 through 11 catalog and make the case of how widespread this injustice really actually is. There are victimizers. They're called wicked three different times, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. These wicked victimizers are hotly pursuing the poor, verse 2. They're scheming, cursing, deceiving, oppressing, and ambushing, murdering the innocent, and stealthily watching for the helpless, verse 8. They're wicked predators, described as lions crouching in wait in a thicket, and seizing and crushing the poor and the helpless, and verses 8 through 10. The wicked are also repeatedly described as prideful. They deny that there's actual punishment for evil, verse 6. They deny God's existence, verse 4 or God's ability to remember, to see, or to care, verse 11. And they deny God's existence, but most disheartening of all, perhaps, the wicked, the predator, the victimizer, they all seem like they're absolutely in the right. It feels like the world is working for them. And verse five tells us his ways prosper at all times. Notice by contrast how the victims are described. In addition to being pursued, oppressed, ambushed, deceived, seized, crushed, they are poor. Yes, they're innocent. 
but they're also helpless. In fact, that word helpless is used upon, of the parade upon three different times. Verse eight, verse 10, verse 14. You can, you can almost hear David sort of steadily raising his voice with every unjust detail he rehearses before God. We're invited to join the psalmist in this righteous emotion to hate wickedness. And that's our first application of what to do with our anger. We are invited to hate wickedness, to hate it. In the words of Eugene Peterson, hate is often the first sign that we care. But Psalm 10 also invites us to look more critically at our world as well. And that's our second application of what to do with our anger. Look more critically at the world around us. A few years ago, there's a kind of parallel that was drawn from my world into this world of the Psalms was driven home to me when I read this Mark Medoff play called When You Coming Back, Red Rider. The play is set in a diner in a small but deserted strip of road just off of a major highway. It kind of reminded me a lot of when I lived in New Mexico. Everything begins familiarly enough. A young cook named Red and a waitress named Angel are killing time on their shift that's pretty slow. And Angel's kind of talking about um, how her relationship is not really working with her mom. And Red is sharing his plan to kind of tell the manager off and like take off and never come back to this town. And soon a few customers are sort of entering like the regulars like Lyle, who's the gas attendant next door, or two slightly wealthy strangers named Richard and Clarice. And then another fairly normal scene follows. You know, Richard, this new wealthy guest, and this small diner is kind of uncomfortably showing off his knowledge and his vocabulary to the wait staff, Angel and Red. And a young couple enters the diner, loudly complaining about needing a new car part to keep going on I-40. The dynamic of the couple, Ted and Cheryl, that new couple, is how the feel of the place shifts. It soon becomes clear that Teddy is wicked. He preys upon the waitstaff and Richard and Clarice. At first, he just puts on a terrible Southern accent and makes really uncomfortable jokes. And then Teddy, who's dressed in army fatigue, starts to turn his off-color jokes into not-so-subtle threats. And then soon, Teddy steals Richard's keys to his car and then pulls out a handgun. And he just starts firing it to intimidate more than to kill. Waving his gun around, Teddy starts to demand very personal information, make ridiculous accusations, and mock Red and Angel's appearance. And things really start to escalate when Teddy um, demands everyone at gunpoint to reenact a cowboy TV drama for his own personal pleasure. And then they have to take everything off but their underwear and dance and stare at each other. And the whole time I read this, I thought, what the heck is going on? Where are the police? (laughs) And then what's interesting is finally at the very end, satisfied in some weird way, Teddy ties everybody up, steals some cash, and leaves the diner and heads to California. And that's the end of the play. Again, where are the police? How can he get away with this? And I felt afraid, and I felt increasingly angry, and I began to think this could happen any time anywhere. And then I thought, this is happening anytime and anywhere. And it's happening behind closed doors in COVID. 
And it's happening in a war-torn world all over the place. You see, injustice is just a wicked person with a weapon away. Injustice is just a wicked man with a weapon away. Still, maybe especially in the 21st century. So verses 2 through 11 in their case for God to intervene intend for us to get angry about injustice. And this impulse naturally leads to verses 12 through 15. And it's a redoubled plea for God to show up and call wickedness into account. That's point three of your outline. Look at how the psalmist David processes his anger and invites us to deal with injustice out there. In verse 12, David begs of God, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the inflicted. Then in verse 12, just like verse 1, he asks the why question. Why does God allow the wicked free reign? Why do you, God, permit evil to happen? Why not call them to account and end oppression? And this set of questions is not immediately or perhaps ever really answered in Psalm 10. But the psalmist falls back into reciting what he does know. He knows that God sees. More than that, he knows that God notes. More than that, God takes up mischief and vexation into his hands to deal with them. Faith is growing even as the psalmist, even as we pray about our own faith, even as the emotion rises within us, remembering how God works is important. That's our third application, what to do with your anger. Okay, even as the emotion rises within us, remember how God works. Commentator Robert Alter notes that the Psalms grammar and word choice get increasingly confused and increasingly unclear until there's a sort of emotional thunderclap of verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. So everything, even what we feel like is our very worst, bone-chilling raw hatred, everything is faced and spoken before God. And that's application number four about what to do with our anger. Face and speak everything, even the bone-chilling rage before God. I love the way that Walter Brueggemann puts it. It's an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing that they will be taken seriously. Because ultimately, verse 15 is a confession, right? It's a confession. David or you or I sometimes secretly feel angry enough to want to harm someone. That kind of anger is a sign, like most anger, that we don't trust God and control. And our hearts are demanding to take control. Often vigilante style. Often I want to put on a cape and become a cape crusader and I want to break that arm, one arm at a time. I want to take justice back like superhero, DC, Marvel, comic style. But in just this verse alone, David pulls back from this other destructiveness 
and again allows God to be the ultimate judge. You, God, you, Lord, you call his wickedness to account until you find none. You see, a healthy, righteous anger keeps God as the ultimate judge. He assesses the evidence. He renders the verdict. He declares guilt or innocence. He gives the sentencing. If we do not let God be judge to be angry for us, we will seek out revenge. Whether that looks like bodily harm or social slander, whether that looks like silent stonewalling or using or abusing someone to get the justice we think we deserve. Take it from an expert. Listen to the way that Miroslav Wolf describes why we actually need God's judgment. You see, Miroslav Wolf is a theologian, but he grew up and witnessed firsthand as bystanders, friends, family members suffering and dying in the Serbian genocide of 1990s Bosnia, in the Bosnian War. So Miroslav Wolf writes this, and it's a rather lengthy quote, but it's worth repeating. He says this, as a Croatian, in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They, dream, they deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Wolf continues, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, his thesis is the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He says, this will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture like I did in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. As one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about the many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, if God did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Does that make sense? Does Wolf Point make sense here? To put it in Psalm 10's words, the only way you don't and I don't go out and break the arms of the wicked or become wicked ourselves is to leave the ultimate punishment to God. Yes, we've got to try for criminal justice. We have need to give people consequences, but we ultimately rest our wounded anger in he who alone is righteous. The ultimate judge, the Lord God who alone is not tempted by wickedness or pride. And that's our fifth application about how to handle our anger. Ultimately, we need to rest our wounded anger in God who is righteous. This shift to letting God ultimately weigh and sentence the wicked is what allows verses 16 through 18 to end Psalm 10 with his closing argument for our confidence in God. Point four on your outline. We'll start with a plea 
verses, for the case, verses 2 through 11, redoubling the initial plea for God's justice, verses 12 through 15. This psalm now ends with a sort of honest and hopeful confidence in God. Listen to the way he puts it. The Lord is king forever and ever. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. In her lecture series, uh, The Power of Vulnerability, uh, Brene Brown affirms that this kind of resilience is real and possible, that the ending of Psalm 10 doesn't have to be like lying through your teeth, which is what it sometimes feels like. Brene Brown says, according to her qualitative research, resilience comes, this kind of resilience comes from loudly and constantly complaining, but with perspective. How do we complain with perspective? And Psalm 10 shows us how this is done. We get radically honest about our anger, even confessing our bone-chilling hates to God. And that complaint, we begin to see how God, as he is, who he is, and ourselves as we are. So that complaint with perspective. And that's our final set of applications, and we're just going to tease those out, and we're going to end. How do we have perspective about God and about ourselves? with complaint. Look, by honest emotional prayer, we get to see who we are, actually are. Not just about God or ourselves and who we think we should be, but we get to see who we actually are. Our Sunday, um, not who we think we should be, not our Sunday best selves, right? Not the selves with dockside loafers all the time, a chiseled six pack, perfect hair, a sort of self-satisfied smile. Now we get to see ourselves as we are all the time. And we get to admit that we too could be wicked. <laughs> we too could be and can be him and her, especially if we have a similar background to that person, a similar role models, genetics, circumstances, environment, similar temptations and provocations. I too can become arrogant, right? I too could be wicked and do act wickedly. The 16th century pastor John Bradford put it really beautifully. He was arrested for his Christian belief. And he's locked in the Tower of London, right? And there he watches as sort of, uh, he's unfairly imprisoned there, and he famously watches a man who's done some terrible deeds, absolute wickedness, being marched to be executed. And as he watches him through his window in the Tower of London, John Bradford says this famous phrase, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. <laughs> Do you and I have this kind of self-honesty, this kind of resilient perspective? Maybe start with this question, which I'm admittedly obsessed with. Do you want to hear the truth to prove that I'm right? Do I want to hear the truth to prove I'm right or to be able to admit where I'm wrong? Do I want to hear the truth to prove where I'm right or to admit where I'm wrong? The other perhaps most essential piece of resilient perspective is seeing God as he actually is. To see ourselves rightly, we need to see God rightly, right? That vertical perspective leads to the horizontal perspective. You see, God, Jesus incarnate, the image of the invisible God, Jesus out of unfiltered love for us, he fulfilled Psalm 10. Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 53, tells us that God died on a cross. Jesus, he became a victim of the victimizers. He was poor, innocent, helpless. 
And verses seven through eight of, Psalm, of Isaiah 53 tell us he suffered for us. He, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. But why? Because the judge of the universe was judged. He was judged as the wicked will be for our sakes. The cross exists to forgive us of our wickedness, to give us the kind of relationship with God where we can actually see and acknowledge all of ourselves, all of the dignity, all of the abilities, all of the gifts, yes, but also the darker hatreds, those moments of arrogant judgmentalness, of greed, of deceit, of oppression. Knowing Jesus in real history, that he was oppressed, judged for us, this belief leads to a radical confidence in the face of injustice, out there in the face of anger inside. You see, we live in a culture of outrage, absolute outrage. And there's so much dignity in that outrage, but we do a lot of saying about how other people are evil and very little doing good ourselves. This culture of outrage gets better when we begin to look first and repeatedly at the rage in our own hearts, the unrighteous rage and the righteous rage alike. And when we do look inside, instead of stuffing the anger with shame and fear, or instead of venting the anger with the explosive cracks of a black plastic baseball bat, like David, we can pray the words of Psalm 10. We can be still and let her anger honestly ask God, are you just? Will you really let the wicked win? And according to theologian Tom Wright, God has already answered this question. He merely points towards two wooden poles, one vertical, one horizontal, planted 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. The cross was not the defeat of Jesus Christ at the hands of the evil powers. It was the defeat of the evil powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ. It was the victory of weakness over strength, victory of love over hatred. It was the victory that consisted in Jesus allowing evil to do its worst to him and never attempting to fight it on its own terms. Jesus bore the weight of the world's evil to the end and outlasted it. There on the cross, we see the lengths God's righteous anger went to save us. There on the cross, we see how God's righteous anger will save our world. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, thank you for this time to meditate on something that's really uncomfortable to think about. And, but Lord, thank you for the gift of prayer. Thank you for the gift of you seeing it all and knowing it all, of knowing the word before it hits our tongue of knowing our heart's deepest pockets that we deceive ourselves about. Lord, you help us to get more honest. But Lord, would you also help us to, to, to take our honesty to you? Lord, I pray for our prayer life. And I pray, Lord, that even in the midst of our prayer life, even in the midst of our everyday interactions on a Sunday or Monday or Thursday, I pray that you would be in the midst of it and that you'd remind us of the cross what you've paid for, and what you've promised. The end of wickedness. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.